Every year, the ungodly seem to increase their attacks upon Christ by attacking Christmas. Have you noticed that? It seems like every year it gets a little worse. And it's interesting, they seem to like to use the Constitution's clause where it says separation of church and state. They like to use that as their sword and typically the ACLU as their soldiers in an effort to somehow eradicate every vestige of Christianity from the public psyche. One of the most recent attacks is one that maybe you heard about on the news in the town of Vernon, Connecticut, where the city, of course, ruled out a nativity scene in the public square and in the park, but they approved a large three-sided sign that could be erected by the Connecticut Valley Atheists, featuring on two sides of the sign was a pre-attack image of the Twin Towers in New York with the sun shining between them. And then on that picture on both sides, it said, Imagine no religion. Obviously, they're blaming religion for the attacks on the Twin Towers at 9-11, including Christianity and so on. And the other side contains a message about the winter solstice. And here's what that message says. Quote, in late December, the sun is lower and days are shorter than any time of year. Throughout the rest of winter, the sun gets higher and the days get longer. Because of this, people have celebrated the winter solstice from time immemorial. People used to believe that gods moved the sun across the sky. Today, we know that there are no gods and that the sun moves by natural causes. And we celebrate not only the movement of the sun, but our ability to understand that movement, end quote. While this is sad, it is certainly to be expected by those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as we're told in Romans 1. Those people know that there is a God just as surely as they know that the sun rises in the morning. In fact, the scriptures tell us that because of creation and because of conscience, all men are without excuse. But frankly, such darkness provides a stark contrast to the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the dark things that are happening in our culture and our society today, you can frankly see them more as a black contrast to the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we are going to bask in that light. You know, every Christmas I get lost in the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I get lost in the marvel of His humiliation, the miracle of His incarnation, the ministry of His association, the majesty of His glorification, and the mercy of His invitation. Those things we studied last week. And I also find that every glittering light seems to somehow remind me of the presence of God and ignites within my soul the full Shekinah of His presence that we will someday see face to face. And every Christmas carol is an opportunity to give my heart expression. And every gift given or received 
points to the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every opportunity for fellowship seems to be just a just a little preview of heaven, doesn't it? And every meal, just a, a little sample of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And every smile that we see, a testimony of His grace. And perhaps one of the greatest expressions of this kind of joy can be found in Mary's hymn of the Incarnation recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And I would invite you to turn there this morning. Luke chapter 1. And while you're turning, may I remind you that in Luke 1, God has dispatched the angel Gabriel to a young, perhaps 13, 14-year-old Jewish girl by the name of Mary, a young lady from the lineage of David, from the little town of Nazareth, a young woman betrothed to Joseph. And he has told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that she would conceive and she would be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God. And as added confirmation... And certainly knowing that this young woman would need to go talk with someone who would believe such a story. He reminded her of an 80 year old woman who had been barren, a woman by the name of Elizabeth who was related to Mary, reminded her that or actually told her that even though she was barren, she was now pregnant. She was with child. And, of course, she was going to bear John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. And in Luke 1, verse 36, Gabriel says, Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord Be it done to me according to your word. And then we know that Mary runs into the hill country of Judea to meet with Elizabeth and her husband, the priest, Zacharias. And when she comes and greets them, the text tells us that the baby leaped inside of Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist leaps with joy even as an infant. And then she said, blessed among women are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, with that context, suddenly, spontaneously, this young Jewish girl bursts forth in song. And here's what she says, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This morning, I invite you to join me in examining the substance of this hymn of praise. In fact, I've entitled my discourse this morning, Mary's Hymn of the Incarnation. And I believe this provides for us an excellent model of genuine worship, one that we would all do well to emulate. In fact, I would encourage you to examine your own heart as we look at this text and compare your lifestyle of worship with that which obviously flows from her heart. The first thing I would have you notice with me as we observe this text is her doxology was spontaneous, not induced. Notice in verse 46 and 47, she says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Now, it's important for you to understand that both the terms soul and spirit are used interchangeably throughout Scripture to describe the immaterial part of man, to describe the inner being of man, the core of who we really are. And here, Mary uses a poetic device, one known as Hebrew parallelism, in which the same idea is repeated using different but synonymous terms in order to reinforce her statement. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In other words, what she's saying is the core of my being overflows with exaltation and worship to the Lord. And I am rejoicing that God is my Savior. Now, I find this to be a curious response from a young teenage girl. Here we have a young lady who is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Undoubtedly, she would be afraid of what others would think of such a tale. Imagine what her husband-to-be would think. Joseph. What about her family and friends? Who would possibly believe her other than Zacharias and Elizabeth? No one had heard from God in over 400 years in Israel. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to tell people as a young girl, yes, I am pregnant, but not by Joseph. We have not been together, but the angel Gabriel came to me and told me that I was going to be impregnated by God himself and that I would conceive and bear the Messiah. Can you imagine the ridicule and the scorn that would be brought upon her? Certainly the punishment for being pregnant apart from wedlock, according to Deuteronomy 22, would be execution. Perhaps she might have feared that. However, in that day, they would typically just divorce. But to think what was going on in her heart, the potential of embarrassment and disgrace and perhaps even banishment. But notice her soul does not erupt with fear, but with exaltation. Now, as I meditated upon this passage, I had to ask myself, 
How does this happen? What is the source of such spontaneous worship? I notice here in verses 43 through 45, there's no mention that there was 45 minutes of worship music to somehow whip up her emotions to get her to worship. To break forth in such a spontaneous doxology. There's no frenzied emotion of people around her to somehow induce her to have such a reaction. But here we have a spontaneous eruption of praise from the very core of her being. Now, how does this happen? May I suggest three things that tend to emerge from this text that would cause this to occur within the heart, not only of Mary, but any child of God. First of all, her spontaneous reaction was due to a high view of God. She had a high view of God because she was saturated with his word. As we look at this particular passage of scripture, this hymn of the incarnation, as I call it, we notice that she quotes the Old Testament some 15 times. Obviously, she's saturated with the word of God. We read portions of Hannah's prayers. Remember remember when Hannah prayed for Samuel? References to the law. There's uh, excerpts from the Psalms and from the prophets. You see, dear friends, her soul was filled with an intimate and a precise knowledge and understanding of God. And as a result, when this particular event comes along, all that is within her just erupts from her. It is a doxology, a pouring forth of praise. In verse 47, notice how she understands God as Savior. She rejoices in God as Savior. In verse 49, she speaks of the Mighty One who has done great things and holy is His name. So there she reflects upon her understanding of God's omnipotence and His holiness. In verse 50, she acknowledges His mercy upon all who fear Him. And in verses 51 through 53, she rehearses His actions that exalt Him as the sovereign God who rules over all things. So she understands the sovereignty of God. And in verses 54 and 55, again, she praises him for his mercy and his faithfulness in keeping his covenant promises to Abraham and his offspring, her people forever. You know, it's interesting. Many times when people, even many times Christians, encounter some kind of a great trial in their life, they do not respond in a similar fashion. Many times their response is one of fear, one of anger, one of despair, kind of pounding their fists saying, God, why is this happening to me? I deserve an explanation. In fact, most Christians, I fear, would not be able to write such a hymn of praise even if they had a week to do so. Why? Because most Christians, sadly, have a low view of God, a very weak, superficial understanding of the character and the attributes of God, and they are not saturated with His Word. Others need something to induce their worship. (laughs) They need, as I say, 45 minutes of kind of emotional music to whip them up. 
or they need some kind of a ritual or for many people, they need certain religious icons in a room, maybe stained glass windows and so on. But not so here with Mary. Why such spontaneous doxology? First of all, she had a high view of God because she was saturated with his word. Secondly, she was committed to an even greater apprehension of his glory. You see, it is obvious as we look at this text that Mary had experienced repeatedly the faithfulness and the mercy of God in her life. And so now she's committed to an even greater apprehension of his glory. We see this, for example, in verse 46. Notice the text says, my soul exalts, or it could be translated, magnifies the Lord. The term exalts or magnify is literally a term that means to amplify or to to enlarge, to expand. To make God greater and more glorious by praising Him, by worshiping Him, by serving Him, by honoring, obeying, loving Him, and by leading others to do the same. This is what she's wanting to do here. Moreover, because of the grammar, because it's in the present tense, we can realize that this had been the preoccupation of Mary's heart long before she became the recipient of such divine blessing and favor. So this is what motivated her every thought. She was constantly living in such a way as to expand or magnify or exalt the glory of God. And now she has even more reason to magnify him. I would want to ask you, as we look at the text this morning, do you live for the glory of God? Is that the center of gravity around which your life orbits? That everything else is kind of secondary or tertiary. Are you so overwhelmed by his mercy and your grace and and his grace and his faithfulness in your life that you want to magnify him? Do you long to see him worshipped by other people? Are you passionately committed, therefore, to an even greater apprehension of his glory, not only in your own life, but in the lives of others as well? You know, if your joy in life is tethered to circumstances, then the answer is no. In other words, if you're happy only when everything is going good and your joy in the Lord is only there when everything's going good, but when it goes bad, you get sour and sullen, then no, you really are not committed to an even greater apprehension of his glory. If you have to drag yourself to church and worship with the rest of the saints corporately, and you look for any excuse not to be here, the answer is no. If you have no secret devotion to God, if you have no prayer life, if you have no appetite for His Word, the answer is no. Don't fool yourself. And frankly, Mary's hymn of praise will be foreign to the expression of your heart. Well, we all have much to learn from this young teenage girl, don't we? One final observation pertaining to the spontaneity of her doxology. I believe, thirdly, she was passionate to have others join her song of praise. She was passionate to have others join her song of praise. 
And I believe this is because she was filled with the Holy Spirit, as the text says. She was inspired by him. You see, she knew that the generations to follow would consider her to be blessed beyond imagination. Because she had been given this incredible honor of being the mother of Christ. But I find it interesting, this did not make her proud. In fact, in verse 48, she says, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. In other words, think of it this way, dear friends, because she knows God intimately and because she understands that she is a sinner that has to be saved only by God's grace. Because she has proven him over and over again, she speaks forth this marvelous testimony so that following generations who count her blessed will join her in magnifying the Lord. And isn't it interesting? That's precisely what we're doing this morning. Oh, child of God, what a remarkable model of worship we have. And again, I would ask yourself, how often do I become so overwhelmed by the glory of God and his manifold mercies in my life that I just explode in a spontaneous doxology of praise? I hope that happens routinely for you. And you know what? That is not something that can only occur when you're in a church service. I find that it often occurs to me on the back of a horse. I find that it will occur in my study. It will occur at times when I'm with my family and my grandchildren. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you who know and love the Lord. And again, you must ask yourself, do I have a high view of God? Do I really know him and understand who He is and long to know more of Him? Am I really saturated with His Word? Do I have an even greater apprehension of His glory because I'm committed to obedient living and I watch how He faithfully pours out His, His mercy and His grace in my life over and over again? And do I long to have others join with me in worship and praise? Well, not only was her doxology spontaneous, not induced, but another observation. Secondly, I notice here that her worship was God-centered, not man-centered. <clears throat> In order to demonstrate this, let me offer you an illustration of man-centered worship. I want you to have a point of reference. Last Christmas, I tuned into the Fox News television network to hear what they called an evangelical icon deliver a special Christmas sermon complete with a musical extravaganza. extravaganza, And I wanted to see what that was like. And as I listened, his message was, was, was kind and positive. He had a lot of cute little anecdotes sprinkled through what he was saying in order to make every morsel of information exceedingly tasty to a very upbeat crowd. And with great skill, he presented a delicious yet distorted version of the gospel centering around the Christmas story found in the Bible. And unfortunately, it bore little resemblance to the gospel that Jesus preached. 
And as I listened carefully to what he was saying, I found myself becoming increasingly agitated at the subtle spin on sin and the Savior. Like so many modern-day religious entrepreneurs bent on attracting seekers, the preacher defined sin in such a way that virtually no one could possibly be offended. In fact, the essence of his definition was that sin includes all those things we think and do that rob us of fellowship with God and steal away the happiness he wants us to enjoy. Now, you know, that sounds all well and good. And people smile and nod with approval. But really, the good news of the gospel becomes nothing more than God loving us so much that he sent his son to die to save us from our unhappiness. Excerpts of interviews on the street were included to reinforce his definition of sin. People were asked what they thought they needed to be saved from. And answers included things like, quote, I need to be saved from my finances. Another said from my destructive relationships. Another said, I need to be saved from my job. One person said, I need to be saved from myself. And one person even said, I need to be saved from my sin, which was encouraging to hear. But nowhere in the program could you hear a clear biblical definition of sin. Exposing man's dreadful condition and the holiness of God that had been offended. The emphasis was always man-centered, never God-centered. The emphasis was always on man and his needs, never God and his glory. Neither the preacher nor the people on the street ever acknowledged that because of their sin nature, that everything that we are and everything that we do are fundamentally offensive to God. You didn't hear that. And that apart from God's regenerating grace, apart from the gift of faith, sinners will remain under the wrath and the condemnation of a just and a holy God. You didn't hear that. In fact, the preacher never told his listeners that there is nothing about sinners, we as sinful man, that conforms to the moral character or the desire of God. Instead, his message was clear. God exists for you rather than you exist for God. In essence, what he was saying is he just loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and save you from your unhappiness. Come to Jesus and he will make you successful. He will make you feel fulfilled. He will fulfill your dreams. He will give you purpose in your life. And on and on it goes. Dear friends, you see nothing like this in Mary's hymn of the Incarnation. Her praise did not center around God helping her to become more fulfilled or more happy as a person. You don't see any of that. There's nothing about him where she praises him for helping her find more purpose and happiness in life. Or now she's more uh, personally liberated and now she can be all that she was meant to be and all of this type of thing. None of this contemporary dribble pertaining to personal satisfaction or health or wealth. You don't see any of that here. Instead, she begins by rejoicing in verse 
47, in God, my savior. You see, she's not referring to God as Santa Claus that somehow gives out goodies to people if we know the right formula. Obviously, she knew that she was a sinner, that she was in need of a savior. And therefore, her worship centered around God's saving grace. You see, being saved from the penalty and the power of sin was the glorious truth that ignited her praise. Moreover, she understood that her relationship to God was not like I think many want to believe it today, that of a U.S. citizen that really deserves more than what we're receiving. Isn't that how we think in our country? We, we really deserve more than what we're getting. And, of course, the politicians all say, if you will vote for me, I will help you get what you really deserve and take it away from those people who are trying to get what really belongs to you. I mean, that's the mentality today. And that's brought into the church. So now come to Jesus and he'll help you get what you really deserve. Beloved, you can be thankful that we don't get what we really deserve. Mary understood that she was a bond slave, better translated, a slave. In fact, Jesus answered, or she answered Gabriel in Luke 138. She said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And in verse 48, she praised God because he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Now, it's crucial for you to understand something here. You see, all through the New Testament, we find that we are called servants of Christ. And it could be better translated slaves of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We've been bought with a price. Unfortunately, because of the stigma of slavery, most translators have replaced the word slave with the term servant or sometimes bond slave, as we see here in Luke 1. In fact... If you were to read Matthew 25:21, the text says, well done, good and faithful, and you've heard a thousand times, servant. But the term doulos is better translated slave. There's many other passages. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Literally, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And he said as well in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. The point is simply this, dear friends, we must understand what Mary understood, that we are fundamentally the slaves of God. We are his slaves, first and foremost. Now, you must also understand the background of this. You must understand that. In those days, and certainly in many places around the world today where there's slavery, slaves had no independence. They had no freedom, no rights. They had no legal recourse in the courts. They did not even have citizenship. You must understand that they were completely owned by their master and submitted to him without hesitation and without negotiation. Whatever he said, they did instantly. And they had no thought of deserving something more. That would never go through their mind. 
Their personal desires and ambitions and dreams were never considered by their masters. They were completely dependent upon their masters who provided for them exclusively. And the best way to think about slaves in the ancient days was simply this. They did one of two things. They either obeyed direct commands from their master without any hesitation or in the absence of direct commands, they spent their life doing all that they possibly could to make their master happy, to please their master and to constantly make themselves available to do the master's bidding. Beloved, this is what our relationship to Christ should be. And I want you to hear this because if you don't understand this, your worship will always be superficial. And when I say worship, don't think about something that happens here in a church service on Sunday morning. I'm talking about your lifestyle. You must understand that you are a slave of Christ. And when you understand this, it'll transform your worship. You see, he is your Lord, your curios, your your master. And we are his doulos, his slave. And like ancient slaves, we have no status of our own. Our status is only determined by the one who owns us. Well, this was Mary's perspective. And frankly, this is the perspective of all genuine believers Therefore, her worship was God-centered, not man-centered, not self-centered. If I can put it this way, she understood that she was depraved, not deprived. And there's a huge difference. She understood that she existed for God rather than God existing for her. Remember, the angel of the Lord told Joseph in Matthew 1.21 that your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their unhappiness and poor self-esteem. Obviously not, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Beloved, wouldn't it have been wonderful if the TV preacher had told the truth? If he would have said to people, Dear friends, because of your sin, you are abiding under the wrath of a holy God. And there is absolutely nothing that you deserve other than punishment. And if you don't understand that and you think that's too harsh, it's because you do not understand two things. The holiness of God, number one, and the depths of your depravity, number two. But... To make things even worse, there is nothing in you that is possibly worth saving to God. There is no merit in your own self. You are utterly bankrupt. You have no capacity to save yourself. There is not enough good works that you can possibly do. You are solely saved by His grace and His mercy. And you must cast yourself upon Him for that mercy. But the good news is, because of His great mercy and love, He has provided a way to reconcile sinners unto Himself. And He has done that through the atoning work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Therefore, by grace, through faith alone, a gift from God, you can be saved. Wouldn't it have been nice if on public television he had said, dear friends, in light of all of this, I call upon you to abandon all of your ambitions and all of your dreams. I call upon you to jettison your pride. To put away your self-centeredness and all of your demands for personal happiness and success and self-esteem and purpose. And I call upon you to repent of your sins, to deny yourself and become a slave of Jesus Christ. The one who bought you with a price. And certainly this is my sincere invitation to all of you who may be within the sound of my voice, that do not know Christ as Savior, to come to Jesus, to deny yourself and be willing to be His slave. But you know what is amazing? And what is totally foreign to the slave-master relationship of the ancient world is simply this. When you become a slave of Jesus Christ, you become a slave of one who loves you. Who gave his life for you. In fact, this master makes you his son or his daughter. And makes you part of his family. You were adopted as a child of God into the family of God. It's amazing. In fact, we read in scripture that he clothes you in his righteousness. And he lavishes upon you all manner of spiritual and even physical blessing. And he makes you the recipients of an unimaginable inheritance that is reserved for you in heaven and kept by the power of God himself. In fact, if you become his slave, he will make you a joint heir with Jesus, the son, and you will become a citizen of heaven. And for these reasons, you will be able to pour forth a doxology from your heart. Like Mary and say, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. So as we examine the text, we see, first of all, that her doxology was spontaneous, not induced because she had a high view of God. She had a commitment to an even greater apprehension of his glory, and she was passionate to see others Glorified the Lord as well through her song of praise. And secondly, we learn that her worship was God-centered, not man-centered. She understood that he was the Lord, that she was the slave. But thirdly and finally, as we look at this text, we see that her praise rehearsed God's mercy in the present, the past, and the future. You know, friends, this should be an integral part of all of our worship. In fact, you see this all the time in the Old Testament. It was a common theme, for example, in the Psalms, where there would be a reflection upon God's mercy and faithfulness and all of the wonderful things that He's doing in the present, but also they would look back to the past and rehearse the things that He had done. They would also look forward to the future. I remember as a child singing that, that hymn, the chorus would say, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. That's the idea here. And that's what she does. 
First, she praises him for what he has done in her life. In verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. And, you know, this must always be the foundation of our praise. That God is our savior. Why would we possibly praise God if we were hopelessly doomed to an eternal hell? But that's not the case. And then she praises him for the unimaginable blessing of choosing her to be the earthly mother of the Son of God. Verse 48 and 49, she says, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And likewise, all of us who have been saved by his grace can sing a new song of redemption. We can praise him for all of the blessings that he has lavished upon us in this life, as well as to reflect pensively and joyously and expectantly upon all of the blessings that will be ours in heaven. And though we cannot share Mary's unique joy as the mother of Christ, we do share some unique similarities spiritually. Charles Spurgeon very poignantly describes that in this way, quote, We bear as close a relationship to Christ as did the Virgin Mother. And we in some sense take the same position spiritually, which she took up corporately in reference to him. May he be formed in us the hope of glory. And may it be ours to tend his infant cause in the world and watch over it as a nurse does over a child and spend our life and strength in, in, in endeavoring to bring that infant cause to maturity, even though a sword should pass through our own heart while we cherish the babe. End quote. But I want you to notice that Mary does not limit her praise for God's mercy just in her life alone, but also for what he has done in others in the past. Notice in verse 50, and here she quotes Psalm 103, 17. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And beloved, we too should rejoice in what God has done in the lives of the saints that have gone on before us. Generations of godly ones who have given us a legacy of grace. I reflect, for example, upon the literally millions who have died at the hands of Roman Catholicism because of these five solas around this sanctuary wall. Some have estimated close to 200 million people. Think of the legacy of the faithful men and women of God who helped to found this country. Think of great-grandparents and grandparents and parents who prayed for you and who lived a godly life and on and on it goes. Think of the called out ones, the ecclesia, all of those whom God has called to be a part of this great organism called the church. And then in verses 51 and 52 she quotes from Psalm 98.1 and Psalm 118.15. And here, again, she demonstrates her familiarity with God's involvement in ancient history. And by the way, this is crucial for genuine, rich worship. I fear that too often Christians do not have a grasp of the things that God has done, not only in ancient biblical history, which is recorded 
obviously in the word, especially in the New Testament, but also down through redemptive history. And these are things that should thrill our soul. Notice what she says here in verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. And in verse 53, she quotes from Psalm 107.9. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. You know, it's almost as if she's downplaying that which God has done in her own life as though it has been eclipsed by all of the things that he's done throughout redemptive history. And as a note of caution to each of us, we need to remind ourselves when we Worship the Lord in our thoughts and in our songs and what we write and what we say. To be careful not to confine our praise to the microcosm of our life alone. Many times we praise God and rightfully so for all that he's done in my life and in the life of my family. But dear friends, we need to expand this. We need to magnify the Lord, by expanding our praise to encompass all of the things that he has done throughout redemptive history. And, you know, you can do this even in your own prayer life. And certainly when you're talking with your children, rehearse with them the glories of God and creation. Remind them of his holiness that was offended in what he did in the universal flood. Remind them of the meaning of the rainbow. Remind yourself and others of his promises to Abraham, of what he did with Moses and the children of Israel in the Exodus. Remind them of Joshua and the judges and Elijah and Elisha and the incarnation of Christ and all that happened when the church was established and the apostles. And then let that be a catapult towards an understanding of what is yet to come. Well, then she finally praises God for what He has done for His covenant people, Israel. His elect, His chosen people, and what He will do in the future. And here is really some eschatological praise. Praise regarding that which God will do prophetically beginning in verse 54 he has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his offspring forever let me remind you of something here so that you understand the Jewish mindset and therefore the one that we should have as we look at this text you will remember that God made a unilateral unconditional irrevocable Everlasting covenant to Abraham that was introduced in Genesis 12 and it was actually made in Genesis 15 verses 18 through 21. And it was later on reaffirmed in chapter 17 and later renewed with Isaac in chapter 26 and Jacob in chapter 28. And in that covenant, he promised Abraham that through his seed, all of the nations would be blessed. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, is now fulfilling part of that covenant promise. And so naturally, Mary is praising him for that, but also for the rest of the promises that will yet come that were part of that covenant. 
Because in that covenant, he also made promises pertaining to divine blessings and protection for the descendants of Abraham, for the Jewish people, where he told Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. There were also promises in that covenant regarding to the nation of Israel, that he would make them a great nation and that Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. And then finally, there were also very specific promises made regarding to the land, to a specific territory that will ultimately belong to the nation of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see repeated affirmations of these promises that will ultimately be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, returns and establishes his earthly kingdom and reigns for a thousand years. You will recall what Gabriel promised Mary in Luke 1, 32. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. You see, you must understand that these are glorious truths that animated her worship and should likewise animate our worship as we anticipate the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises, especially those that he made to Abraham and later to David, as well as the new covenant. Now, let me digress for just a moment. I want you to be careful, dear friends, not to make the error, as I believe many people do, of associating the temporal nature of the conditional Mosaic covenant that came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant with the permanent, unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. You see, many people will claim that because Christ fulfilled and thus nullified the Mosaic covenant, that the same is true pertaining to the Abrahamic covenant. And therefore, all of the promises pertaining to, for example, the nation and the land and the protection and all of this, all of that is now spiritualized and all of that's kind of lumped into the category of the church because the church has now replaced Israel. And thus, there is no eschatological future for Israel. Friends, this is Roman Catholic eschatology. It's sometimes called supersessionism. It's it's uh, amillennialism and so forth. But I want you to understand that the New Testament makes a clear distinction between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. Nowhere in Scripture can you find an explicit statement that suggests that Jesus Christ and the church are the new covenant replacement for Israel. And thus the church is now the new spiritual Israel. Now, indeed, the new covenant of grace described, for example, in Jeremiah 31 was made, according to Jeremiah 31, 31, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And yes, it replaces the Mosaic covenant, but not the Abrahamic covenant. And therein is the danger. In fact, the new covenant incorporates the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, including the restoration of the nation of Israel to the land. We see that the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant and the new covenant all find their confluence ultimately in the millennial kingdom when Christ returns again. In fact, in Ezekiel 11, beginning in verse 17, 
God said to Ezekiel, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. And I shall give you the land of Israel. And I might hasten to add that we're seeing the miracle of the state of Israel even today. He goes on to say, when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. Obviously, that has not happened yet. And I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. Obviously, that has not happened yet. And I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. And then this is reiterated again in chapter 36, verses 24 and following. And then in verse 28, he says, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, beloved, you must understand it is with this great joy, the anticipation of all that God promised to Abraham and later to David and even in the new covenant. It's all of these things that come together in the mind of this young Jewish girl. As she praises God for what he has done, what he has promised to do, and ultimately what he will do. So therefore, she includes in her praise the covenant promises that God made to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And certainly now, with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Messiah coming, these things are set into motion in a renewed way. And this thrills her little heart. And as we today marvel at the miraculous preservation of the Jews, as we see even the nation of Israel possessing just a fraction of what God has promised them, our hearts can leap with joy knowing that what God has promised in His covenants to Abraham and to David and the new covenants to Israel are coming to pass. And we, even as Gentiles, who have been grafted into that, into that vine, are recipients of many of those same glories as we will be during the millennial kingdom when Christ comes again. So, beloved, in closing, I would challenge you to examine your own worship in light of what we've learned from Mary today. May your doxologies be spontaneous, not something that has to be induced Spontaneous because you have a high view of God, because you have an even greater apprehension of his glory. You want to magnify his name because you have a passion for others to join you in worshiping and glorifying the lover of your souls. And may your worship be God centered, not man centered. May you understand the concept that you are indeed a slave of Christ. And glorify our Master for all of the things that He lavishes upon us. And then finally, may your praise rehearse God's mercy. Not only in your life, but because of all that He has done in the past. And all that He is doing now and what He will do in the future. May the Spirit of God convict our hearts to these ends. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths that we glean from Mary's 
Him of the Incarnation. And we pray that we will take them to heart and that the seeds of these truths will germinate within our souls and bear much fruit for our good and for Your glory. I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.